good to see you this morning. I appreciate you guys being here uh, early and learning about uh, our Reformation series. Today we are going to finish our Reformation series on the key reformers, and it's appropriate to end our series on William Tyndale, the uh, father of the English Bible. There are definitely more men that we could talk about and be greatly edified and encouraged by, but we're going to end here and we're going to pick up a New Testament survey class next week. So before we begin, let's start with prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you so much again for bringing us together on another Sunday. Thank you for giving us history to learn from, to be encouraged by. Thank you that you've risen up William Tyndale to give us the words that you have written in our own language for us to understand. We're all guilty of taking the word of God for granted. And so studying the life of William Tyndale reminds us of the priceless treasure we have in your word. Amen. So William Tyndale... Typical agenda, here's where we're going, early life, his work, his doom, does that sound a little bit more dramatic, and legacy. And if we have time and you have any questions, we can can have some discussion. We should because my, my PowerPoint's a little bit shorter than normal, and we should finish on time, hopefully, even though we're starting late. So he was born in uh, 1494 in a rural western English town. His parents were farmers. They ran their own farm so they could afford to send him to college at a young age where he studied those subjects that you see. And he got his bachelor's degree and master's degree. And he was ordained to the priesthood. Sound familiar? (laughs) It's almost like these reformers have very similar backgrounds, very similar experiences or testimonies. They grew up in a middle-class family in the 15th, 15th, 16th century. They went to school. They were smart. They got ordained. And then he went to Cambridge. By the time he went to Cambridge, Dr. Luther's works had been circulated in in England, in Scotland. And so this is where he would first embrace the core truths of the Reformation. And one interesting fact that I really, I guess I had forgotten about. um, Ever heard of the White Horse Inn? Anybody ever heard of the White Horse Inn? Yeah. It was a bar, a tavern in, in, uh, in England, and, and uh, a group of men, some scholars, some other men that you probably not, might not have heard of, um, would meet at this pub and just talk about theology. It was like a 16th century men's meeting over a beer or two or however many they drank. <laughs> so... Uh, most most historians believe that Tyndale was part of this group. So you can imagine being educated at the highest level of 
of of education known to man, stepping out of that academic environment into a bar where this new theology is starting to permeate the the, uh, the religion of the day. And so Dr. Lawson said of uh, Tyndale that these gatherings were the kindling for the English Reformation. And it kind of goes back to what I, I say often, is that the reforma- reformations and revivals are spawned by People, you know, um, outside of the academic environment. Usually, especially today, it's in the academic environment where your faith is challenged, right? <laughs> the academic environment normally results in apostasy and, or questioning your faith or um, being exposed to all kinds of liberal stuff. That's why maybe you've heard the saying before, um, so-and-so didn't go to seminary, he went to cemetery. Because a lot of people who go to liberal seminaries, even though they have a, a high reputation in scholastics, it's a spiritual cesspool. And so, it was the same then. Uh, I mean, until Calvin started his uh, institute to train pastors... These, these prestigious academic institutions were not bastions of Reformed theology. But, in God's providence, it was able to infiltrate the doors of the institutions just enough to expose these men to the truth. And getting back to what I was first saying, um, revivals, reformations, and changes, they don't happen in the classroom. They happen on the street. They happen in day-to-day life. They happen from the, you know, the pulpits, in your evangelism, in your interactions with people, in your personal lives. So, Lawson was saying that these barroom chats about controversial issues was was the the kindling that sparked the Reformation. I think that's interesting. So. Um, the biography I was reading says that at this time, after being exposed to Reformed teaching, both in the school and in the bar, he, he decided that he needed to step away from, from his academics. And so he went back to his hometown, was employed by a wealthy family, and he worked as a tutor and a personal secretary. And while he was there, he preached at a little congregation. It was during that time where he realized that the Latin Vulgate was inadequate for the evangelization and equipping of England. He argued that it was impossible to establish the lay people any truth except the scripture were laid bare before their eyes in their mother tongue. This is a conclusion he made after he was witnessing firsthand the ignorance of the Roman Catholic priests who would come and visit or pass through the area. So by this time, after preaching, 
and reading and being involved in whatever debates they were at the White Horse Inn. His views were becoming so Luther-esque, Luther-like, that he found himself in heated debates with Roman Catholic clergy. At one establishment, one priest asserted that we had better be without God's law than the Pope's. And then Tyndale famously said, I defy the Pope and all his laws. Keep in mind that this wasn't some silly little religious tiff, you know. That was, that was a crime to say that. It was a crime that was deserving of, of uh, punishment and excommunication. He'd go on to say, if God spared him life, or many ears would cause a boy that drives the plow to know more scripture than he does, speaking, to the, speaking about the Pope. That's also a pretty famous quote of his. So, at this point, he's ready to embark on his mission to translate the word of God into English. So in 1523, he traveled to London to seek authorization to translate God's word into English. He met with a bishop named Cuthbert Tunstall. And I think this goes to show that even though Tyndale had righteous anger and frustration towards the Roman Catholic Church at the time, he still had enough respect for the the status quo, I guess, to go ahead and, 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 and try to do it peacefully and safely at first. But how many people think that this bishop was, was on board with Tyndale's mission? No. He disapproved. Because this bishop knew that if the word of God would be unleashed, that reformed teaching would be propagated. Which you can understand the implications of that. And so at this time he knew that staying in England was no longer an option. It wouldn't be safe. He would be unsuccessful if he stayed. So at age 30... In 1524, he sailed to Europe to begin his mission to translate God's word from the original, from the Greek to English. This is, this is the first time this had been done. Okay, Remember, years earlier, who was the man that translated the first English, English from the Latin? No. Wycliffe. Right? So, in 1524, he begins this project. It's believed that he traveled to Germany first and eventually led to Witt- ended up in Wittenberg, which that town sounds familiar to you guys, right? He would have been influenced by Luther and Philip Melanchthon, 
who was Luther's right-hand man. Luther's right-hand man um, was uh, his fellow professor at the um, uh, University of Wittenberg. In fact, Philip, this guy Philip Melanchthon, he was, he was also, you know, he, you, we could consider him very much a reformer as well. And also, um, you know, when we think of Luther, well, I don't know, maybe you don't do or don't, but, you know, he, he, he comes off as sometimes being a little, a little fiery and arrogant in, in a lot of his writings. But Luther, believe it or not, had a humble side to him. When I was in Wittenberg, I saw a quote um, at the Melanchthon house. You can go there to Melanchthon's house and visit it. It's been, it's been refurbished and um, updated. But there's, there's a plaque on, on the wall inside Melanchthon's house that, uh, of Luther that says, says I, I, I'd much rather prefer Master Philip's work than my own. And so that just goes to show that, that Luther esteemed Philip for his um, mastery of, of language and theology. So Tyndale would, would go here and he would be influenced, and you can imagine how that, what type of effect that would have on him to be, to be directly um, involved with, with Luther and Melanchthon in Wittenberg. So he hung out there for a while, and that's where he completed his first translation of the New Testament. And so it was ready to be distributed by the spring of 1516. His Bibles were sent to England in bales of cotton along international trade routes to England. But by the summer of 1516, church officials immediately declared that the purchase, sale, distribution, or possession of this Bible, of his Bible, was a serious crime. And so after this, right, I'm giving you guys a bird's eye view, right? There's other stuff that has happened in between here and now. By this, at this point, at this juncture, Tyndale is in hiding, right? He's a fugitive. And at this time, when they realize, the Catholic Church of England realizes that these Bibles are starting to spread... And by the way, it's this guy, William Tyndale, who's behind it. They, they start an incessant campaign to capture him and bring him to their form of justice. So in 1528, this cardinal named Thomas Wolsey dispatched three agents to Europe to search for him, but they were unsuccessful. They couldn't find him. He was well hidden. And he had enough supporters in Germany, to support him financially, to house him, feed him, and enable his ministry. In November 1530, Thomas Cromwell, that name might sound familiar to you guys, an advisor to King Henry VIII commissioned a guy named Stephen Vaughan, an English merchant sympathetic to the Reformation cause, to find Tyndale. Once Vaughan gets there, he sends three letters to three different cities and waits, and surprisingly, Tyndale responds. And so 
First, Rome tries the harsh way. Go bring them back by force. They saw that wasn't going to work. So now they're going to try a diplomatic way. Send a guy that, that Tyndale might like and try to convince him to come back. And if you can convince him to come back, we will guarantee him straight passage. And here's what Tyndale said. He, he told this guy, Vaughn, if you can guarantee not only safe passage, but if you will guarantee that someone else will pick up this project of writing the Bible in a mother tongue, then I'll give it up and I'll go home. But until I get official word from the king, I'm staying put. So Tyndale gave his conditions, and that's what they were. So Vaughn goes home, and Tyndale's conditions were not met. So he stayed put. Now, since you guys are pretty much experts now in church history, right? What do you think the Roman Catholic Church's response was to that? You think they would try to do another diplomatic approach? Do you think that they would just say, okay, you win, you stay in Germany and do your thing? Absolutely not. Some Roman Catholic official catches wind of a guy named Henry Phillips, who, like the prodigal son, squanders his daddy's money in gambling. And so he finds himself down his luck, so to speak. And so the church hires him to go to Europe to find Tyndale and bring him back. And I read um, at this time Tyndale had been staying with an English merchant in Germany and uh, who was, again, empathetic to the Reformation cause. And so somehow, um, I, I don't remember the details, but somehow this guy, Henry Phillips, was able to, was able to through the, um, the investigation and the following of the trail through the merchant community, was, was able to go right to Tyndale. And so here's how much of a Judas this, this guy was. Once he found Tyndale, he, he pretended to be his friend. He, he, he gained his trust. And after he gained his trust, creating a phony friendship, he lured Tyndale into some back alley where soldiers were waiting to arrest him. So after 12 years of fugitive, he was imprisoned for more than a year before his trial. And now this is a significant part of his life, okay? But up until this time, let's review, okay, right? He has typical upbringing, English upbringing, highly educated. He's, he's, he is introduced to the Reformation teaching in the academy through whose writings? Through Luther's writings. He joins this little band of men at some pub called the White Horse Inn, which continues to stoke the fire of 
truth in his, in his understanding. He decides to go take some time off and just work for some rich family. In the meantime, kind of do some soul searching, right? Some soul searching. It happens, it happens a lot, right? You guys ever had a season where you've come to a shocking, aha, life-changing experience and you just kind of got to step back and, and kind of soak it in for a minute? Well, some, maybe some people should do that more often. But it's typical. A lot of people graduate seminary and instead of feeling like seminary gave them the tools they needed, they questioned whether or not they should be pastors or preachers and they just go dig ditches for a while. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that at all. But that was kind of, Tintendo had that moment. So he, he, he uh, goes back to the Christian family and, and his interactions with priests who are passing through, he, he, he just becomes convinced dogmatically that the Word of God is needed. And if the Word of God is not put in the, in the English language, then the ignorance, the spiritual darkness will continue. So he goes to Germany, he gets his translation done. After having been um, exposed to Luther and Melanchthon personally, he's housed by an English merchant. Rome sends somebody to get him. He's found. He's betrayed. He's thrown into a castle prison. This is where he begins to meet his doom. From prison, he requested... A lamp in the evening. He said, it is indeed wearisome, sitting alone in the dark. But most of all, I beg and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the commissary. Permit me to have my Hebrew Bible, Hebrew grammar, and Hebrew dictionary that I may study and pass the time. Why would he say that? Why, Why would he request those things? Right, he hadn't translated the Old Testament yet. And so, just, just think about that for a second. Meditate on this. Put yourself in Tyndale's shoes. All you ever wanted to do was give God's people God's word. And you find yourself in a cold, dark, wet, stony cell. Now, how many of you, if you had one thing to request from the commissary, would say, just give me a Hebrew Bible and a Hebrew dictionary? You'd be asking for blankets. You'd be asking for a fire to warm yourself. You'd be asking for food. You'd be asking for water. You'd be asking for a bath. You'd be asking for basic things, right? Right? You'd be asking for things that's going to relieve your suffering. But this is what shocks me about Tyndale. Is that he doesn't ask for those things. All he wants to do with the little time he knows he has left is to finish the scripture being translated in English. Do you guys think that's amazing? 
mean, that's one thing that I love about learning this stuff. Is, is that not, not only do you learn that high level of theological training is good and we should pursue it. Not only do we learn from them that preaching is primary, but we learn from these men how to suffer. We learn from these men how to suffer. What else do you think we learn from these men? What else is there? Nope. We learn from these men how to die. So on August 1536, he stood trial before his accusers and he was condemned a heretic. He would go before a large crowd on October 6th, 1536. Okay, now it's going to get heavy, so I'm going to warn you this time. He walks toward this post, anchored in the ground. They secure his feet to the base, and they wrap a chain around his neck, and they strangle him to death. But that's not it. There's more. They proceed to install bundles of brushwood, straw, and logs, and they sprinkle it with gunpowder. They pile it at the base of Tyndale's corpse and lit it. Now, I know some of you probably have never witnessed a human being being blown up. But I have. And the stench and the sight is inexplainable. In fact, it's it makes speechless. So, this, this episode was put on display in public by the king, and who else was responsible? Which church? Be specific. Yes. This is just one, right? This was just one. So I, I don't see how you could continue to be exposed to these things and, 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 be, and be lukewarm or indifferent about the Roman Catholic Church's history and outright incessant Intention to make themselves enemies of the gospel. So, here's, what I, here's why I said 
we learn from these men how to die. William Tyndale's last words was a prayer. As, the, as he was being suffocated by a cold chain wrapped on his neck, he said, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. His last words was a prayer. He didn't have a quiet death, deathbed experience. The last year of his life was a miserable existence in a cold cell, and then he, end, he met his end through strangulation. And since that wasn't enough for the Romans, they, they, they lit, they lit gunpowder under his, his feet, and his body exploded. I'm just curious. Has this how many for you the first time you've learned this? You've learned about Tim Dell before. You guys heard this story. You have too. Most people have no idea. So his legacy is this: his prayers were answered. Less than a year later, the Coverdale Bible, a complete English translation, was in circulation. Then soon after, Henry VIII approved the publication of an official English Bible. By September 1538, a copy of the English Bible and Latin versions were placed in every church in England. Tyndale would say that the New Testament translation was the glory of his life's work. So, you know, every, not every time, that's, that, that would be a lie, but oftentimes, when, when I see a little black pew Bible sitting under a chair in a church or in a chapel or under a chair, I think William Tyndale. If it wasn't for William Tyndale, you would not have a Bible sitting on your lap right now. If it wasn't for William Tyndale, we would um, be just as ignorant as that poor priest who said, We could be without God's laws and not the Pope's. At the end of this biography by Steve Lawson, which that's, that's, that was my primary source for this, this presentation, I would encourage you to get that book. He says in this book that John Fox, you guys know who John Fox was, right? He went so far as to call him the Apostle of England. There is no doubt that this monumental work, that his monumental work, Tyndale changed the course of English history and Western civilization.
Wow. That, that, that's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? To change the course of English history and Western civilization. One man. One man who had the courage to simply take God's word and give it to people. That just amazes me. So, with that said, you guys have any questions or comments or... Um, had Wycliffe's translation survived, uh, or was it uh, was it destroyed? And secondly, did uh, Tyndale's Hebrew uh, Old Testament translations? Did he finish that? Did he get it out? No, I don't. I don't think he finished his Old Testament translation. Nope. Not that's not not that I read, and I don't know about Wycliffe's stuff. I don't know how, how much of it survived. Other questions or comments? Nothing? Okay, well, I, I wish I, I wish I could talk about this longer. I wish we I wish we could talk about this the Reformation for the whole year. But I I, I have to accept the fact, even though it's very difficult for me, that not, not everybody shares the same level of passion that I do for it. And I have to pray for God to restrain me for being understanding of that fact. Um, we all come from different experiences, different backgrounds. Uh, we've all been influenced by different people. So I can't force feed this stuff. But um, it, it does grieve me. Almost to the point of tears sometimes. To, to see so much indifference. Um, and ignorance, and and just apathy in our church and in general. That this type of ignorance and indifference um, is indicative of a much deeper spiritual issue, I think. Um, because knowing or understanding what was done to bring us where we are today. It's just vital to our thinking. Because it, go, it goes back to if we, if we don't remember, if we don't think about it, if we don't care, then we're just, we're just going to slowly keep reverting back to the Dark Ages. And I'll tell you, I got a text um, from a couple of pastors in, at Yakima that I, that I met at a retreat. I wish I had my phone on me. I wasn't planning on doing this. He sent me a text with a picture of an invitation he got um, from the Roman Catholic Church in town. And it was an invitation to come to this ecumenical, ecumenical gathering between the Catholic Church and a Lutheran Church. 
they were going to I can't remember the order. They were either going going to start at the Catholic Church and have a procession to the Lutheran Church and worship there, or or vice versa. So you can see how it's already happening. It's It's already happening. Where Protestants, biblical... Who, 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 are, who have a biblical heritage are willingly and ignorantly marching back hand in hand to a religion that gives people false hope. And I bet you, if the pastor of that Lutheran church had a pastor... Excuse me. If the if the people in that Lutheran church in Yakima had a pastor that loved them enough to teach them these things, there would be no ecumenical gathering. If anything, there would be an evangelistic encounter. So that's. That, that's 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 the main reason why I felt it was it was good and necessary to do this series. Um, that's why I'll never stop talking about it, emphasizing it, um, because I really I really have a have a have a concern for the church, universal church, and for our church to be equipped with these things. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again so much for our time. I pray that those who are in our church who are so cold and indifferent to be rekindled. I pray for their faith to be rekindled and emboldened. I pray for any apathy in any of us, myself included, to be killed. Maybe remember what men like Wycliffe, Tyndale, Luther, Calvin, Knox, Wingley, Huss, those men that gave their lives so that the light of the gospel may be exposed so that we could know you and glorify you. Lord, I pray for our worship service after this. I pray for the message of Solidia Gloria to be clear. Pray for the truth to settle in our hearts to produce a life of praise and life of adoration, life of service to you. Forgive us of our sin and forgive us for glorifying ourselves instead of you. Forgive us for being so concerned with the things of this world. Help us look up. Help us to look to Christ where he is seated. Help us to be vigilant and watchful for the day of his coming. 
so that we may be found faithful and we be found pleasing to you. Thank you for your word and we thank you for the free access we have to it. May you cause us to repent if we are committed to anything more than learning the scripture, whether that's sports or politics or family or friends or anything else. May we all be concerned most of all with the Bible study and preaching and teaching. Because without those things, without Bible study and preaching and teaching, we cannot know you. And if we do not know you, then we cannot glorify you. Thank you for this reminder, Lord. Amen.